For the next seven Sundays, including today, we're going to take a short break from the book of Exodus so that we can prepare our hearts for Easter, for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to do a seven-week series on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, culminating uh, on his resurrection with Easter. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're going to dive into this new series in Luke chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 22. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered all, answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, so that he locked up John in prison. 
Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. The other day I saw an interview with Harrison Ford. He's doing some interviews to promote his new movie where he said that before he retires, he wants to revisit some of his more classical roles, including doing another Indiana Jones film, which I very much look forward to. I hope that he does. And if he does, I've got an archaeological discovery that he could use for inspiration for the next Indiana Jones film. The year was 1990, and what I'm about to tell you is a true story. There was a construction crew building a park, a park for recreation, in southeastern Jerusalem. And as they were digging, they broke through the roof of what seemed to be an ancient burial cave. And as they've been trained to do, when they feel like they've come across something of importance from antiquity, the construction crew immediately stopped so they could bring in an expert and see what they had found. They brought in an expert from the Israeli Antiquities Authority named Zvi Greenhut. Here's what Greenhut wrote about the situation. Greenhut wrote, When I arrived at the site, I found a rock-hewn burial grave, the type of tomb that is typical of the Second Temple period in Jerusalem. The Second Temple period went from roughly 500 BC to 70 AD. So whatever was in this tomb was very, very old. The cave is located in an area in which scores of other such tombs have been discovered. The limestone bedrock into which the cave was hewn is soft, and crumbly and full of cracks, very characteristic of the area. The cave had an irregular floor plan, and its entrance is on the east side. We reached the entrance from within the burial chamber, entering the tomb through what had been the roof. As their flashlights swept the tomb, several ossuaries were found. An ossuary is a limestone burial box. Those burial boxes were only used in Palestine from roughly 100 BC to 70 AD, further fixing the time when these tombs were put there. It was, that, it was in that burial cave that Greenhut discovered an especially ornate and decorative ossuary dated to the first century AD. So what they would do is they would inter the body. So they would put, after death, a person would be interred or placed like in a niche in, in a tomb, in a cave, much like Jesus was. And they would allow the body to decompose for up to a year. After decomposition, they would take the bones out 
and put them in an ossuary, in this burial box. In this tomb, several of those were found, okay? And in particular, Green Hut discovered, like I said, an especially ornate and decorative ossuary, dated to the first century. It was 15 inches high and 30 inches long and was covered with an intricate and elaborate design indicating a person of great importance. Inside were the bones of six people, including the bones of a male approximately 60 years of age. Outside this ancient burial box, this ossuary, was an ancient inscription that drew the interest of the entire archaeological world. It read simply, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Of course, that absolutely blew um, Zvi Greenhut away. Blew him away. And the question, the immediate question on everyone's mind was, were thee the bone, were these the bones of the Caiaphas of the Bible? Um, Caiaphas was the high priest in Israel who presided over the trials of Jesus and sent him to Pontius Pilate for execution. But why would archaeologists think that this was that Caiaphas when the inscription reads, Joseph, son of Caiaphas? Well, we know why. From first century and Jewish historian uh, Joseph, Josephus, who identified the high priest at the time of Jesus not only as Caiaphas, but as Joseph ben Caiaphas, or Joseph son of Caiaphas. Josephus also referred to him as Joseph, who was called Caiaphas of the high priesthood. Joseph was his name, but Caiaphas was the surname he used as high priest. Friends, the bones of the 60-year-old male in that bone box very likely belonged to the man who presided over the trials of Jesus and sent him to Pilate for execution. It is viewed by many as the number one archaeological discovery ever made related to the New Testament. To me, it is overwhelming to think of the role that those bones played in the life of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be in proximity to the bones of Caiaphas? It would be overwhelming. I think it's a tremendous testimony to the fact that the Gospels of the New Testament involve real people and real history and real events. And that's exactly what the Gospel of Luke reminds us at the very beginning of his Gospel. When Luke writes, quote, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. In other words, Luke tells us that he got everything that he's communicating to you and me in the book of Luke straight from the testimony of eyewitnesses. People who witnessed and saw and interacted with the Lord Jesus. Luke writes, so that you may know the certainty 
of the things that you have been taught. In other words, Luke knows that extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence or testimony. And Luke is saying that he has done everything possible to interview eyewitnesses, to interact with the people who were there, and record it for you and for me. He reminds us of the same thing in chapter 3. Look at how he starts to frame the ministry of Jesus. He roots the ministry of Jesus in space and time. He date stamps it for us back to 29 AD when the convergence of all these people came together. Luke writes in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Each person mentioned in verses 1 and 2 is significant. They are significant because they derived their power not from Israel, but from whom? Rome. All of them were appointed by the authority of Rome, which was an ind indication that the Jews at this time were very much under the authority of another nation, a nation far more powerful than Pharaoh had exercised over their ancestors. They had been under the rule of a foreign power for how many years by now? 700 years. The Jews had been under the authority of a foreign power. First Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, now Rome. For 700 years, the Jews had been under the authority of a foreign nation. And the promises of the Old Testament at this time seemed to have passed their expiration date. Promises made by prophets like Malachi that we confessed in our confession of faith. To the Jews of the first century, those promises seemed irrelevant, obscure, like they were never going to happen. A few months ago, I... Um, saw a documentary by a man who specialized in, of all things, I don't know why this interests me as I age, but anyway. <laughs> it's a documentary by a man who specialized in, of all things, he would rescue old Greyhound buses. Okay, that was kind of his thing. And on this particular episode, he heard about a 1948 Greyhound Silverside bus that had been sitting in a field for years and years and years and he pulls up there, and this thing looked dilapidated and ancient. It looked like it belonged in a junkyard. It looked like it could never be resuscitated. The tires had sunk almost two feet into the ground. It had been there so long. Well, over a two-day period, this guy, he worked, and he worked, and he tinkered, and he worked, and he fixed, and he did this, and he did that. He replaced this, and he did that, and lo and behold, 
He got that engine to start, put air in those tires, and lo and behold, brought that thing back to life and drove it off the lot. It was truly incredible. In a variety of ways, that's what John the Baptist is doing. He is bringing new life back to Israel. John the Baptist, properly speaking, belongs to the Old Testament. John the Baptist was more a prophet of the Old Testament than he was a character of the New Testament. John the Baptist was a prophet just like Jeremiah and Daniel and Amos and Zechariah. All of those guys, he was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist's role was to provide continuity and verification and to authenticate the coming of the son of David. In other words, there needed to be a connection between Jesus and all that had come before in the Old Testament. The Old Testament predicted that someone in the spirit and power of Elijah would come and prepare the hearts of the people. Okay, how did John the Baptist dress? He dressed exactly like Elijah. He dressed in camel hair. He ate oats and honey. He said things and did things that reminded the people of the Old Testament uh, prophets. And so he was there as a connector. He was there, as it were, granting his prophetic imprimatur to Jesus. This is the beginning of the ministry of the Son of David that in three years would culminate with Jesus Christ being hung on a tree. It starts here. It starts with John. John is the one who told the people Jesus is the Christ. In the beginning, however, the people thought that John was the Christ. Okay, if you, looked at, you look at verse 15, what does it say? As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John spoke apparently with like great authority, probably a supernatural kind of authority. In fact, he was so unique and so special that Herod Antipas, who ended up putting him to death, viewed him to be a righteous and holy man. He did not want to put him to death. Okay, he put him to death because of his wife Herodias. But, but Herod didn't want to. The Gospels indicate that Herod was very interested in what John the Baptist had to say. He viewed him to be a righteous and holy man. There was something special, something uniquely powerful about John the Baptist. What did Jesus refer to him as? The greatest man who had ever lived. And so the people are coming out to him in droves to be baptized. So the baptism of John, this practice of baptism, is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. What we think happened over time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New is that the Jews started adopting 
um, practices of baptism or ceremonial washing to prepare themselves for a variety of things. And by the time that John had come on the scene, baptism was a common practice. And in this situation, John the Baptist wanted the people to be baptized as a way of proclaiming readiness for the Christ. That's what he's there doing. He's in the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. And people are coming out in droves because they think he might be the Messianic son of David. And what did they think the Messianic son of David was going to do? They thought the Messianic son of David was going to free them from Rome's power and make them an independent people and take them back to the heights of their power and authority under David. That's what they thought. They thought that John the Baptist might be it. They were coming out in droves, okay, to, in a sense, put themselves on his side. Again, look at verse 15. All were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 of our text, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, says, He, John the Baptist, he said therefore to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now that seems to be kind of harsh, does it not? These people are coming out to be baptized by him. Why would he call them a brood of vipers? Well, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that kind of first and foremost and primary in the crowds were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were not there to get their hearts right and prepared for Messiah. They were there investigating and feeling out things and trying to figure out who John was and what he was doing. And they were trying to figure out if he was the Christ, okay, they wanted to kind of, um, they wanted to get on his side, like I said. Look at verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Again, this is all setting up the ministry of Jesus. John said, therefore, to the crowds, which included Pharisees and Sadducees, prominently among them. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, who invited you here? I think he's talking primarily to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these men that he would call whitewashed walls. Who warned you to be here? Who invited you to this party? Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were part of this ruling class. Okay? Like I said, they were not there to prepare their hearts. They were there feeling things out. If this guy was going to be this political deliverer, they wanted to be on his side. Okay? That's what they were there for. Look at the second half of verse 8. This sets up the entire ministry of Jesus going forward. He says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. In seminary, I learned a helpful uh, diagnostic tool um, when you're talking to someone that you're not sure whether or not they're a Christian. I learned a helpful diagnostic tool or a helpful diagnostic question to try to kind of figure out and take the temperature and see where a person is. And the, um, and the question is this, that they encouraged us to ask someone. The question is this, if God, if you were to die today in a car accident or something terrible, if you were to stand before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And their answer gives you a sense of what they're trusting in. Okay, according to John the Baptist, what were the Sadducees and the Pharisees and many that were there in the crowd, what were they trusting in? They were trusting in the fact that they were quote-unquote sons of Abraham. They were trusting in their circumcision. They were trusting in their ethnicity. They were trusting in the fact that they were faithful Jews. That's what they thought placed them in proper standing before God. That was the problem in Israel at this time, and it's really been the problem since the beginning of time. And you can tell that John's answer unnerved them. Basically, when he said, that's not going to save anyone. Your confidence should not be based in being a son of Abraham. Okay, that freaked them out. That was completely unexpected because they truly thought being a circumcised, faithful Jew put them in proper standing before God. And when he said what he said in verses 8 and 9, it completely unnerved them. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, so they, you know, John the Baptist, his message is getting to them. What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, with a changed heart comes a changed life. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? So it's obvious by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is getting their attention. They said to him, or he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, turn from your evil ways and from a life that's just kind of going through the motions. Turn from your wickedness and repent and bear fruit in keeping from repentance. And then he culminates it with this. He wasn't just telling them to turn from something. He was telling them to turn to something. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, turn from your wickedness and turn to him. The axe is here and it is ready and it is laid to the root of the tree. 
You need to turn from your evil and wicked ways and turn to Christ. It's interesting. Over the millennia, the Jews had simply turned from one idol to another. The witness of the Old Testament is, is that the Jews had been consumed with idols of the surrounding nations, loved them, bowing down to them. The Lord took them into captivity, brought them home, and then the Jews ultimately didn't trust in idols. They trusted in their Jewishness. They exchanged one idol for another. And that is the storyline of God's people from the beginning. We are a people that just by, by virtue of our sinful natures tend to trust in anything other than God's provision for us in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we are going to fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. We're going to fix our eyes and our hearts and minds on Christ Jesus. He's our only hope. John the Baptist was there as an ambassador from the Old Testament, giving his imprimatur to Jesus in the New Covenant, saying, listen to him, trust in him. Everything from the Old Testament points to him. John the Baptist was there preparing their hearts to trust in Christ. I pray that he would do the same for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your graciousness, your loving kindness. We, we thank you for how all these parts relate to the whole. Father, we thank you for the witness of history, the witness of your prophetic office in the Old Testament that anticipates and predicts and prophesies a son of David, the Christ, who would come to truly deliver your people. Deliver your people not from Pharaoh and not from Rome, but from the penalty we deserve from our sins. For the penalty we deserve for trusting in anything and everything other than you. Father, we thank you for raising up a new Elijah. We thank you for raising up this powerful and greatest of figures and John the Baptist to direct all of Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his blood and righteousness, to the lamb who would be slain for a wicked and wayward people. Father, we thank you for how John prepared their hearts for Jesus. We do pray, Lord, that over the next six weeks you would do the same for us. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.